Amen. If you have your Bible, open with me to Psalm 19. We're continuing our series through the book of Psalms. And Psalms is the prayer book of God's people. Psalms is the prayer book of God's people. It is good to pray the Psalms. We know that uh, the will of God is found in the Word of God. And so when we pray the Word of God, we are absolutely surely praying the will of God for our lives. It's good to pray the Psalms because the Psalms engage our emotions. They teach us that it's, it's okay to not be okay with what's going on in our hearts and in the world around us. And lastly, we pray the Psalms because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he prayed the Psalms. And if we're going to follow Jesus as his disciples, as his students, it is good to pray as he did. So Psalms is the prayer book of God's people. And today, uh, we're in for a treat because we're going to be looking at one of my favorite types of psalms, that is Torah psalms, Torah psalms. Uh, Torah is a Hebrew word. Uh, that's why it might be unfamiliar to many of you, but the word Torah literally means law or instruction, law or instruction. And uh, the Torah psalms, there are three of them in the psalms, are Psalms 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119, which is just epic in and of itself. Uh, do yourself a favor this week, read Psalm 119. But we're going to be in Psalm 19 today, and we're going to uh, look at the Torah Psalms. The word Torah throughout uh, uh, Jewish history and church history, the word Torah came to also refer to more broadly the first five books of your Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, uh, the word uh, Torah represents maybe the Ten Commandments, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. This is all Torah. It's law, it's teaching, it's instruction. And if we were to determine a main theme of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, if we were to determine a main theme of the three Torah Psalms in the book of Psalms, it would be this. God speaks. God speaks. And before you just shrug that off or brush it off and think, well, of course God speaks, we know that, we know we have his word and he's spoken to me before. I want you to realize that that's a very bold thing to say. It's a bold claim. Just think about this in the, through the lens of the various worldviews uh, present in our world today, the way people view the world. Um, think about the athe atheist for a moment. The word atheist literally means uh, no theism, uh, no God. The atheist will say, uh, God does not exist, therefore, God cannot speak. Or think about uh, the agnostic worldview. Agnostic literally means uh, no knowledge. So the agnostic will say, uh, God might exist, but if he does, we can't know him. He has not revealed himself to us. We just don't know. But the Judeo-Christian, the biblical worldview makes the claim in the Torah, in the Torah Psalms, through the law and instruction of God, that God speaks. The claim is that God exists. Further than that, the claim is that God has made himself known. We can know this God. But even further, we can say with certainty, God has spoken. God has revealed himself to people throughout history, to you and to me today. This is the theme of the Torah, the theological word that we use for 
God speaking or uh, God revealing himself is the term revelation. It's an uncovering, it's a revealing of something that was otherwise hidden. And uh, you need to know that in theology, we distinguish between general revelation and special revelation. This is going to be important as we look at Psalm 19 together. We distinguish between general and special revelation. Uh, General revelation, the first type of revelation, is uh, God's general uh, revealing of himself to all people in all places throughout all periods of history. God reveals himself generally in nature. He reveals himself in history. He reveals himself in human beings created in the image of God. That's general revelation. But then we also have special revelation. This is God's particular revelation of himself to particular people in particular places in particular times in history. And special revelation uh, focuses on Scripture. Scripture, God's word to us, is special revelation. And the ultimate form of special revelation, God speaking to us, is in uh, his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of the Father. So we know that God speaks. He speaks generally in nature, history, and people. He speaks specifically, special revelation in Scripture and ultimately in Jesus. And this is important because this is the structure, this is the theme, this is the purpose of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says God speaks. The first six verses that we're going to look at in Psalm 19 refer to general revelation, refer to God revealing himself in nature to all people. And then the second half of Psalm 19 is special revelation. It zooms in and it focuses on God's special revelation in his, in his Torah, in what we would call scripture. God speaks. And here's the big idea that we're going to unpack in our time together today. It is this. God reveals his glory in nature and his will in scripture. God reveals his glory, his grandeur in nature and his will in Scripture. That's the thrust of Psalm 19. And trust me when I say you're, you're in for a treat. Uh, this is a beautiful psalm, a profound psalm. It's been a blast studying it this week. I'm excited to unpack it together um, as God's people. So let's look first at the first six verses of Psalm 19. We see that God speaks in nature. God reveals himself in nature. Here's the first six verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." Verse 6, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from his heat. God speaks in nature. Verse 1, we see that the heavens, the skies, the created order around us, what do they do? They declare the glory of God. They declare the glory of God. Uh, Fun thinking exercise, something to meditate on, something to work through. I want to ask you uh, to do this. Uh, 
If someone asked you, who or what is God, what would you say? If you had to choose one or two words to answer the question, who or what is God, what would you say? Now, as you think about that, based on uh, maybe what you do for a living or how you're wired in your brain, you might immediately go to either some concrete terms or some more abstract terms. Some of you, when you answer the question, what is God, you'll think a little more abstractly. Uh, You'll maybe say, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is good. Uh, God is omniscient. He's wise. He's all-knowing. These are abstract terms. True, they're abstract. But if we were to ask the Jewish biblical writers to describe who God is, they will go to more concrete terms, and maybe some of you go to more concrete terms. You're visual learners. You like pictures and things you can hold. That's why we see in the New Testament, for example, that Jesus is described as living water, right? Uh, Jesus is described as a shepherd. He's described as the bread of life in John chapter 6. We get that. That's, that's concrete. But I bring this up to say this. One of the major ways, one of the major words that the biblical authors would use to describe God is the concrete term glory. And the word glory in Hebrew is kavod. And it literally means uh, weightiness or worth. Okay? Uh, the word glory means heavy, weighty. Worthy. I want to give you an example of uh, this term because we see it in Psalm 19, verse 1. In 1 Kings chapter 8, after David's son, King Solomon, uh, built the temple of God in Jerusalem, we're told in 1 Kings 8 that the cloud of the glory, weightiness of the Lord filled the temple. And we're told in verse 11, chapter 8, that the priests could not even stand under the weight of the glory of God. That's our word, glory, kavod. It's, it's weighty, it's heavy. Or in Ezekiel chapter 43, the prophet Ezekiel, after the temple had been destroyed by Babylon, is given this vision of what is to come, this future temple where God is going to Fill the earth, fill his people, fill the temple with his glory. And I actually want to read it, Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. Here's what Ezekiel saw. It's magnificent. Behold, the glory, the kavod, the weightiness of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And listen to this. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shown with his glory. You ever been to a, a waterfall, maybe on the North Shore? Or you've been to the ocean, it's just this overwhelming sense of heaviness of the water coming at you? Ezekiel sees this vision of the weightiness, the glory of God, and he says, it's like a innumerable amounts of water coming at me. It's like this bright light that fills the entire earth. 
so that we cannot see it so blindingly bright. That's the glory of the Lord. And in Psalm 19, verse 1, we're told that the heavens, nature, creation, declares the glory, the weightiness, the worth, the heaviness of the reality of the existence of God. Let that sink in for a moment. And in verses 2 through 3, we're told that nature is always revealing the glory of God. This means that when you look out at the sky, when you look at a sunrise or a sunset, when you look out into the created order in nature, you don't have to catch it at the right time. Nature never takes a day off from, from what? Declaring the glory of God. Five words are used in the first few verses. We're told that the heavens declare, the sky proclaims. Verse 2, every day speech is poured out. Every night knowledge is revealed. Verse 3, their voice is heard throughout the universe. What the psalmist, what King David is saying in this moment is that the heavens are constantly roaring the praise, glory, weightiness of the reality of the existence of our God. So I want to ask you, do you see God's glory in nature? You know, like when you look out into the world, when you look at the sky, when you look at his creation, do you see the weighty reality of the existence of God? David did. One example of this in history is uh, the famous physicist Albert Einstein. You might know the guy, popular for the theory of relativity, studies the universe and the cosmos. Einstein was not a religious man. He wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he is on record saying, I have looked out in the world and I have seen glory. Why? Because the heavens are always declaring, they're always revealing the weightiness of the reality of the existence of our God. And I want to ask you this as well. If, if nature is always revealing God's glory, nature, how much more should God's people made in his image who are able to think and move and have being how much more should we be declaring the glory of God through our lives, in our worship, in our work, in our parenting, in our friendship? How much more? If nature always does this, how much more should God's people declare the glory of God in all things? Verses 4 through 6, uh, David continues, God speaking in nature. I wish we had more time to unpack verses 4 through 6. But here's what he's doing in general. Uh, uh, David is saying, the heavens on a grand scale declare the glory of God. But then I, I want to focus on one aspect, the crowning achievement of God's creation in nature, and that is the sun. David zooms in on the, 
the sun. He says in verses 4 and 5 that the sun rises, the sun sets. In verse 6, David says the sun gives off heat. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And I want you to understand that David was able to look out in nature. He was able to look at something as common and as reliable and as ordinary as the sun. And he was able to say, I see glory in God's creation. David was able to say, I see the weighty reality of the existence of God, his glory. I see it in the ordinary things around us. That's the thrust of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. God speaks. God reveals his glory in nature, but it doesn't stop there. This is where the psalm gets really good. Because in verses 7 through 11, the psalm says that God speaks not only in nature, but God also speaks in Scripture. This is why this is a Torah psalm. Because God speaks through his law, through his instruction, through his word. And verses 7 through 11 are a beautifully crafted, condensed poem written praising God for revealing himself, his will, specifically in a book, in Scripture. We know that the will of God is found in the Word of God. God reveals himself, specifically, special revelation to his people in a book. And in verses 7 through 11, the psalmist uses six words to emphasize six different aspects of Scripture. And then he explains each of them, the, uh, their role in human life. So if you have a seatbelt, you need to buckle in because we're going to cruise through these six terms. We're going to cruise through these five verses. There's so much here. Um, encourage you to take notes if you can, but we're going to look at each of these six terms and their role in human life. It's so good. It's been such a fun study uh, this week. Six aspects of the Word of God and how they're useful for us every day. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, the Torah of God, is perfect, without blemish, without imperfection, reviving the soul. Scripture revives the soul. It's this idea of nourishment. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4. He said, quoting Deuteronomy, man does not live by physical bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Scripture revives the hungry, thirsty, wandering soul. Verse 7 continues, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure. This means it stands the test. It withstands scrutiny. This is what I love about Scripture is that generation after generation, PhD after PhD, have attempted to uh, devalue or uh, scrutinize or show contradictions in Scripture, but it is sure, and each generation has Failed. Man has lived and died, but God's word has endured. Why? Because it is 
sure, it stands the test of time. We're told that scripture uh, makes wise the simple. Here's what you need to know. Scripture does not just tell us what is right and wrong. Scripture also tells us what is good for human flourishing. Scripture doesn't just tell us what's right and what's wrong, but it tells us what is good. This is wisdom. God's revelation is good for human flourishing. In 1 John chapter 4 or chapter 5, I believe, uh, John the apostle, after walking with Jesus, says, God's commandments are not burdensome. They're good for human flourishing. The precepts of the Lord, verse 8, are right, rejoicing the heart. You need to know that there is an objective standard for what is right and what is wrong. We read in the book of Judges an entire community of people that were doing what was right in their own eyes, and it led to destruction and oppression and the opposite of flourishing in the society. When we do what's right in our own eyes, it leads to human oppression. But man, when we do what is right according to God revealing himself in his will and in his word, it rejoices the heart, we're told. It is good news. It's good for God's people to follow what God has prescribed in his word. Goes on in verse 8, says, The commandment of the Lord is pure. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. So we have these two words, pure and clean. The idea here is that uh, the wisdom of the world and the uh, reality of sin in the world defiles us. It makes us dirty. It makes us feel shame. But God's word is clean. God's word is pure. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. I was able to counsel someone just last week uh, who was really wrestling with some sin in, in his life. And just told me, man, I just feel shameful. Like, I just feel this, this weight on me. I feel this, this defilement, this dirtiness, this filth that I can't get rid of because of sin. And in that moment, I was able to encourage him with the word of God. I was able to encourage him with 1 John 1, 9, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. I share that to say this, God's word cleanses you. God's word does not defile, it cleans, it restores. God's word is pure, God's word is clean, enduring forever. And the sixth term that Psalm 19 uses to describe the word of God is that it is true. And what a timely word. The word of God, scripture, Torah, is true and righteous altogether. When we say scripture is true, and I'm convinced of this more and more every day, when we say scripture is true, we mean to say that scripture uh, presents a way of viewing the world that corresponds with the way things actually work. 
meaning we can look at the content of Scripture, and then we can look out into the world and say, oh yeah, what's going on out there is explained very clearly in here. What we read in here makes sense of what is going on out there and in my heart. Scripture is true. It corresponds with reality, and it's righteous altogether. There's not one word from Genesis to Revelation that is unrighteous. It is, it is righteous altogether because it is uh, breathed out. It is given from a righteous creator God. And so all the words that he speaks are righteous altogether. This is the quality of the word of God. Then in verses 10 through 11, King David says this, uh, Torah, scripture, is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. What the psalm is saying is that God's word is desirable. God's word is not burdensome, it's good for us. And I'll say this, um, if you're at a place where you can't resonate with that, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and, and it's a burden to read the word, it's a burden to hear from God, maybe you say, I, I don't know that I can say that scripture is desirable. I don't know if I can say it's sweeter than honey, it's more to be desired than gold, then can I just encourage you to pray? Can I just encourage you to ask God to do what he says he would do in 2 Corinthians 4? Like, root down in 2 Corinthians 4, because it says in 2 Corinthians 4 that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God can do it. God will make light shine in your dark heart. He will make scripture come alive to you. He will make scripture be desirable for you. In fact, in this moment, we're almost wrapped up. I, I, I feel led to pray. I feel led to pray in this moment for those of you that maybe don't desire Scripture in the way that Psalm 19 speaks of it. I want to I pray for you, so would you pray with me very briefly? Father, would you make Scripture, your word, desirable for your people? God, as your word says, would you shine as a light in a dark space? Would you incline our hearts to your testimonies? Would you open our eyes to see the good that is in your word? I believe you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. God reveals himself. God speaks. He speaks in nature, verses 1 through 6. He speaks in scripture, verses 7 through 13. Excuse me, 7 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 14, we have the response of King David. We have the response. 
God speaks, we respond. And I want to wrap up by giving you three ways, three ways that we can respond to the fact that God has spoken, to the fact that God reveals himself generally in creation and specifically in his word. The first way we can respond is respond humbly. Respond humbly. Verses 12 through 14 of Psalm 19 says this. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This seems like a really random thing to include in a psalm about God speaking, but I think it's appropriate. I think what's going on here is David is catching the, the weightiness of the reality that God has spoken in nature, in scripture, and now he feels very small before a great and good God. All he can do is respond in humility. God, keep me from presumptuous sins. He says, let the words of my mouth, verse 14, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He responds in humility. The second way we can respond to God's revelation, God's speaking, is by responding soberly, sober-mindedly, uh, seriously. I shared earlier about the physicist Albert Einstein who though he wasn't a Christian, though he wasn't religious by any stretch of the imagination, uh, he did speak of seeing glory in nature. I didn't share the second part of that story uh, intentionally. What happened was Albert Einstein uh, once visited a Christian church. And having heard the preacher preach from the Bible, reportedly he left, went back to his office or his home, and he recorded in his journal, quote, I have seen more glory in my study of nature than these preachers have seen in their study of scripture. I need you to catch this. Einstein, someone who had no relationship with the Lord, after hearing scripture read, after encountering a follower of Jesus who sees God's glory in scripture, who sees God's glory in Jesus Christ, Einstein walks away from that encounter and says, these preachers don't know what they're talking about. These Christians don't know what they're looking at. I've seen more glory in the skies than they've seen in Jesus. Man, when I read that a few weeks ago, I was immediately burdened. God, don't let people say that about me. You know, don't, don't let people who have no relationship with Jesus, who have not seen God's glory in the incarnate Jesus Christ, in the word of God, don't let them say that they've seen more glory than I have. Respond soberly. Respond soberly because we have scripture, we have Jesus, the ultimate revelation of the Father. And lastly, we respond thankfully. We respond thankfully. Uh, God reveals his glory in nature, yes. We're also told that God reveals his will in scripture, in his word, yes. 
But I also want you to know that we have a revelation that uh, transcends these things. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we're told that Jesus is the glory of God, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. And we're also told that Jesus is the word of God, John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. In Jesus, we have the glory of God revealed in nature and we have the will of God revealed in his word, united in one person. Jesus is the glory of God and he is the word of God in human flesh. We have Jesus. If you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. And so we respond thankfully because God has spoken in nature generally and scripture specifically and ultimately in Jesus Christ. Would you close with me in prayer as we thank God for speaking through his word? Father, thank you that you have spoken. Father, thank you that you continue to speak. Your glory is seen in creation. Help us to see it. Your will is revealed specifically in your word. Help us to obey it. And God, your glory and your will is revealed ultimately in Jesus. Help us to worship him. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself. We're not left guessing who you are. But we are left simply with the fact that you've revealed yourself and you've given Jesus in whom we can place our faith, die to self, believe in Christ's finished work and be brought to you, our Father. So God, we praise you as David did in Psalm 19 for revealing yourself. May we respond humbly. May we respond sober-mindedly. And may we respond thankfully to your revelation today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.